morning. Okay, good to be back. You're stuck with me for a while now. Um, a lot of the stuff that I had going is no longer going, so we're going to, uh, perfect timing, we're getting ready to start in 2 Corinthians. Uh, now, I'm not going to give you the same uh, brief recap I always give you because I have to set this book up as we go into it, but uh, I'm going to give you the abridged version. Paul helped set up Corinthians, and it turned into a mess after that, and he's trying to help fix it. That's the abridged version, okay? So, it's a mess. That's why we call the series Address the Mess. But today, uh, we continue in that study. It's still Address the Mess, part two, if you will. Um, but we're going into 2 Corinthians. Uh, now, we're actually starting the second part of this series. In our minds, it's the second part of this series. But Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Okay, four letters to the Corinthians. And the reason I haven't put a lot of time or effort into explaining that is because... Um, Two of them are supposedly lost, is what they say, the lost letters to the Corinthians. But, you know, I am of the mindset that God doesn't lose stuff. So if God wanted it in there, they would have put it in there. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, it's not like God's going to go, gosh, where did I leave that? <laughs> you know, that, that's not how he works. So uh, evidently, he did not want those to be in the, in the canon, and he didn't feel they were inspired. So there are four, but we have the two God wanted us to have. But anyway, now, 2 Corinthians is one of the most autobiographical uh, letters that Paul ever wrote because he had to constantly uh, explain his life and explain where he was and how he got there and, and legitimize himself to these people. Uh, but it was also really, really personal, probably the most personal letter he wrote out of all of his letters. And it was so personal to him because there was a ton of drama in this church. And this is a church that he helped establish. He had a heart for this church, and it was just loaded down with drama. Now, a lot of times when there's drama in a church, what we do and what people did then and now is you just leave. You're like somebody else's problem, right? People say, oh, I'm leaving. There was drama there. And I, I understand that, but Paul couldn't do that. Paul couldn't do that because Paul loved this church. He helped establish this church, and he knew how desperately that area needed someone in some place to teach good doctrine. He wanted to see people delivered and so he didn't take that opportunity to just walk off and leave them. He was just too vested in them, uh, and he wanted to see them succeed. Now, there were people in Corinth who was making this really hard on Paul, okay? They were constantly subverting Paul all over Corinth, okay? Some of them questioned his apostolic authority, or was he really sent from God? So they were spreading rumors, and just like what normally happens when people are spreading rumors, people are ready to listen and believe them. Right? There was no reason they had to think that, but they attacked him, saying that they, they questioned his apostolic authority. That was one thing they were doing. Uh, some of them questioned the direction he was leading the church. Right? And I can understand that because he's leading them opposite of the world, and the Greco-Romans wanted the Corinthians to come their way and kind of grow with them. So they, they questioned the direction he was leading the church. Others questioned and even challenged his, uh, they challenged his theology, and they challenged his gospel. Right, because there were a lot of false teachers out there that were teaching a different one. But Paul recognized that all these attacks were from the enemy, and he was not willing to back down. He'd proven that, so he was going to fight this fight no matter what happened. Now, this letter was written while Paul was in Macedonia around 56, 57, 80, somewhere in there. But it was written one year after he wrote what we call 1 Corinthians, and one year before he wrote the book of Romans. Okay, that's right around the time frame of that. Okay? Now, the intention of this letter is pretty much summed up in 2 Corinthians 13.10, so let's take a look at that real quick. 
2 Corinthians 13, 10 says, I am writing this to you before I come, hoping that I won't need to deal severely with you when I do come. For I want to use the authority the Lord has given me to strengthen you, not tear you down. This is kind of funny. The way I relate this is, have you ever had that kid? Well, don't point at him if they're with you. But have you ever had that kid that it just feels like no matter what you do, you don't get through? You know, I'm sure I had other brothers and sisters like that. Not me. You know, I, I, was, I was probably that one. But there's always that one kid that just doesn't get through, and you feel like all you do is discipline them. You know, I can remember my wife and I with my youngest daughter. She was rambunctious, we'll say, right? And I remember saying, I feel like a child abuser. All we do is punish her, you know, when she was little because she just was hard-headed like her mother. But she, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But that's, what, that's how Paul had to feel here. Because Paul wrote this, the purpose of this was, I don't want to come there and have to chew your butt again. I just one time would like to come and enjoy you people. That's, that's why I'm writing this to you. So Paul mainly, but not exclusively, wrote this letter for the following reasons. Okay, He wanted to strengthen and encourage those who would remain faithful to the message. Right? Uh, he wanted to encourage uh, them to continue giving financially because they were helping uh, believers all over the place, especially at Jerusalem and some other areas where there were famines. So he, what had happened is some of the people had believed all the lies they told about Paul, and they just stopped giving. They just stopped. And so Paul had to go back and say, hold on a second. You know, if, if you believe something about me, we'll deal with it, but don't make the other believers suffer. Uh, so he was saying they had to continue collecting the offering. Uh, then it said uh, it was you know, to kind of give that group of people that had been rejecting him another chance. He was extending grace to them is kind of what this book is doing. Now, before this happened, evidently Paul visited the church of Corinth after writing 1 Corinthians, and it didn't go well. Okay, it didn't go well at all. We know that because look at 2 Corinthians 2.1. says, but I determined this for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow, what? Again, in sorrow again. Now, a lot of theologians, because they have more time than common sense a lot of times, a lot of theologians debated when Paul's what they call sorrowful visit actually took place. Why do they debate that? I have no idea. But they debate that. And here's the thing. Some say, well, it took place before he wrote 1 Corinthians. That's when he was talking about being disappointed. Others say it happened after uh, he wrote 1 Corinthians. Others say it was after he wrote all the Corinthian letters. And I just don't think this is that difficult of a topic, right? He, I believe he visited this church after he wrote 1 Corinthians, but before he wrote 2 Corinthians, because he stopped in, and mainly the reason I believe that is there's no mention of the sorrowful visit in 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians. And this sorrowful visit, as we'll see when we go throughout the book, he goes in and finds out that almost everybody is rejecting God's plan and rejecting his teaching. I mean, he goes there probably thinking, you know, vacation, see the church, you know, have some great services. And he gets there, and they're involved in some of the most pagan rituals, and they are just a train wreck. And there were people who were trying to uh, sell him out and people who were judging him and making up lies about him. So it wasn't a good visit. It was a bad visit. And if that had happened before 1 Corinthians, he probably would have mentioned it, right? Because in the very first chapter here, he's mentioning it here. He's mentioning it uh, in actually second chapter that it was not a good visit. So it's pretty safe to say that this happened before he wrote 1 Corinthians and after uh, or before he wrote 2 Corinthians and after he wrote 1 Corinthians. Now, as a matter of fact, he probably wrote this letter 
because of that visit. He saw what a train wreck it still was, even after they received his first letter. And it hurt his feelings, and it, and it you know, kind of discouraged him. And he knew he needed to go back. But this is honest to goodness truth. He didn't want to. You know, have you ever had a problem that you just don't want to face sometimes? Anybody ever do that? You know, and it's like, I need to go back, but I think I'll send an email. I mean, that's kind of that's the mentality here. He's like, I don't want to go back and get my gut stomped all over again. I don't want that. So I think that's a lot of the reason why he wrote this letter, because he didn't want to visit them until he got them straightened out. He didn't want to go there and play the principal. As a pastor, I always hated that when people treat me like the principal. You know, I walk in and they say a bad word and go, oh, sorry, pastor. I'm like, what are you apologizing to me for? You think I never heard that word? You know, they're like, oh, well, I don't want to say this in church. Then don't say it at all. How's that? You know what I mean? But my whole point is I don't like being treated like I'm different because, well, I mean, I'm different. Trust me. <laughs> but spiritually, I'm the same as anyone, and I, and I don't like that. And he didn't want to feel like, oh, here comes the principal. Paul's coming. Great. Everybody get ready. Your butt's about to get chewed or Paul wouldn't be here. He didn't want to do that. He's like, I don't want to do that, so maybe I can fix it with this letter. Because, listen, it's never fun when you have to discipline a subordinate. You know, there's times that it's necessary. If you've been in management, you know that. But it's never fun, and no one looks forward to it unless they're just out of their mind. And so I think a lot of this is just Paul saying, I don't want to be that. Next time I go there, I actually want to, you know, enjoy my visit, order pizza, play euchre. I don't want to be yelled at and barked at the whole time I'm there or have to yell and bark at other people. So anyway, I titled today's message Committed because that's the only way I can describe this. For Paul to continue writing them, after he already wrote 16 chapters to them, he went, made the trip and visited them and was basically, you know, spit on, if you will. Uh, and then he leaves and they get in a worse mess than before. A lot of people would have said, you know what, I don't live there, forget you. You know, let somebody else take over, I don't care. He was committed, so that's why we call this first message Committed. Now... 2 Corinthians 1, 1. We're finally getting to the main text. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins this letter with, he's got kind of a standardized greeting. Have you guys noticed that? I mean, a lot of times, almost every book, almost verbatim, he greets them pretty much the same way, Right? So it's a standard greeting. But there are three things in this, in this salutation, or you will, where he's introducing himself, uh, that are important to pay attention to. First of all, he identified himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Okay, now that's because there were false apostles all over Corinth, people saying God sent them too. But Paul knew that they were working for the enemy, and they were really there just to subvert Christianity, and they opposed him and opposed the word of God and opposed his views. So he was setting himself apart from the ones who claimed to be apostles, right? He was setting himself apart from that. 2 Corinthians 11, listen to this, starting in verse 12. It said, but what, uh, but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are, meaning as apostles, uh, in the matter about which we are boasting. For such men are false prophets, deceitful or deceitful workers, uh, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So the reason he starts off by saying, I am an apostle sent 
by Jesus Christ himself was he wanted them to understand, I'm not like them. I was sent by God himself, which is why he said, by the will of God. He was saying, I was appointed. When Paul became an apostle, he was actually on the road to Damascus. He was uh, an up-and-coming Jew who was wanting to be the, the stud of the Sanhedrin, you know, the, the up-and-comer. And he actually was putting people in prison and sending them to be put to death because they were believers. So when Paul was commissioned to be an apostle, he was actually on the road to Damascus so that he could imprison more Christians and probably put them to death. So you talk about being the involuntary servant. I mean, Jesus appears to him in this huge light, and he falls upon his knees and goes blind, and he says, Paul, you're going you're gonna to serve me. And so he has a man named Ananias come and pray with him, and next thing you know, he goes off to study for three years, and he becomes probably the greatest apostle to walk across the page of the scripture. I mean, probably the greatest uh, in the whole New Testament. So he was saying, listen, I, I didn't appoint myself, like some of these other apostles that you hear in this area who are self-appointed and, and you know, self-serving. I was appointed by God himself. That's Jesus Christ commissioned me to be here. So he's defending that. All right, the second thing you're going to notice is that Paul also introduced his readers to Timothy. Okay, Timothy was a young man, very faithful, spiritual man, right? But the thing with Timothy was he was half Jew and half Greek. Okay, he was half Jew and half Greek. And being only half Jewish caused Timothy a lot of problems with the Jews and some of the newfound Christians. Because, first of all, he was the victim of this Jewish blind prejudice against anyone that wasn't pure Jewish. They pretty much... If you weren't of pure bloodline, they pretty much thought you were a dog, especially those who were half Jew and half Greek or half Jew and half anything, because they felt like that made you worse than a dog. You knew better and chose to be, you know, with someone else. Your parents did. And so you ended up being half and half. So they called them half breeds and they wanted nothing to do with them. So he had a lot of trouble when he started getting into ministry um, because, you know, a lot of them just saw him as a half breed. And they're like, I'm not going to listen to anything you say, you traitor. That's that's kind of way they they approached him so there was also some christians who saw him uh, as being too young to be a spiritual leader that's why paul encouraged him in first timothy chapter 4 starting in verse 12 he said let no one look down on your what youthfulness but rather in speech conduct love faith and purity show yourself an example to those who believe so a lot of these jews had who had converted to christianity they had a lot of the old traditions in it have you ever noticed if you were raised in a traditional church do you still fight against them anybody I'm, am i the only one that was raised in a traditional church okay well i still find myself fighting some of those things even though i know they're not right they were just ingrained in my head my whole life right you still fight against them well a lot of these people were still giving in to some of them okay so a lot of the jews thought that you had to be from certain rabbinical schools and you had to be a certain age if you were going to be respected as a rabbi and so they kind of brought that with them. And when they saw that this was a young man faithful, immediately they're going, I'm not following that kid. And I know exactly what he felt like because when I started pastoring here, I was 25 years old. And when you're counseling, you know, very young people at the age of 50 when you're 25, you know, it's intimidating a little bit. But you have to realize it's not you, it's God that's doing the speaking. But I kind of get it. So he had a lot of difficulty. Uh, the third thing that we have to pick up from this intro is despite all their sins and all their spiritual, you know, Im, uh, the, the immaturities, we'll say, in their spiritual walk, he still considered his readers believers. If you don't believe in eternal security, I don't know what Bible you're reading. Because if there's ever been a church full of people who should have lost it, here it is. People were having affairs 
with their stepmother, okay? They were cheating each other. They were getting involved in all kinds of pagan practices. They had turned away from the God that saved them, yet Paul knew that their eternal life was guaranteed by the blood of Jesus, not by anything they do. And so that's why he was sent to discipline them. God's people don't get away with sin. We just get disciplined here for it. You know what I mean? And he don't let us get away with it. So anyways, that's despite all that, he still saw them as believers. You'll never see him question whether they believed or not, just questioning the decisions and the choices they were making. Now, we know that he thought they were all believers because he called them all saints. Okay, have you ever heard somebody say, well, she has to be a saint for putting up with him? You ever hear that? People have said that about my wife many times, right? The reason is, is because there's, there's some denominations that put some different twists on what a saint actually is, okay? Um, according to the Bible, biblically, saint is just someone who's believed. It comes from the Greek word hagios, and it means set apart or dedicated. That's all it means, okay? It can mean godly, but set apart, dedicated, godly, right? So what this was, was Paul was... Paul called anyone who was set apart for Christ, who had believed in Christ, a saint, a hagios, meaning they were set apart for Christ. It didn't mean that there was some special criteria they had to meet, you know, perform three miracles and, you know, I don't know what all the deal is, but that's something that man made up. Okay, biblically, you'll never see those requirements anywhere in the pages of Scripture. That's something some man came up with because you hear people voting on sainthood. Listen, here's how you get, here's how you win that vote. Believe in Jesus Christ. Bam, you're a saint. You're welcome. Okay. Now, moving on. So that's how we know he still uh, believed that they were that they were uh, believers. But Paul also addressed the saints throughout Achaia. Now, Achaia was a Roman province that was uh, included in all of Greece that was south of Macedonia. And Corinth was the capital of Achaia. So this letter was actually probably written to more than just Corinth because he knew they would share it with the churches in Athens and Centuria and, and Corinth. So he knew it was going to reach a larger audience. Okay, you guys still with me? Okay, somebody in the back goes, well, you just woke me up. I am now. <laughs> okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others when they are troubled we will be able to give them the same comfort god has given us for the more we suffer for christ the more god will shower us with his comfort through christ even when we are weighed down with troubles it is for your comfort and salvation now remember salvation when, let me just throw this in here before i read on doesn't always mean of the soul all right it comes to it, what it means it means to be delivered that's what that word means in the greek to be delivered okay but for your comfort and your salvation or deliverance. Uh, for when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that uh, as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. That's a little wordy, isn't it? I went to the NLT for that because the NASV was very wordy on that. And I'll explain what this means. It's really not as complicated as it sounds. So we start off here. Paul immediately starts encouraging them. Immediately, you wouldn't think someone writing a church that keeps screwing up that he would write them and start off by encouraging them. But he did. He really was encouraging despite all their issues. And that's because he understood kind of what they were going through as a follower of Jesus. Because when you follow Jesus, you are going to be persecuted. Right now, a lot of times as, as pastors and as churches, we do a bad job of explaining that to people because we're so excited about getting them to come to faith. 
we forget to tell them the whole story. Because when I first got saved, I literally thought everybody was going to love what happened to me and want it just as bad as I did, and everybody was going to see Jesus the way I saw him now, and that was not the case. Okay, so sometimes we got to be honest with people. Everyone isn't going to be good to you, and you're going to suffer some for Jesus, but it's worth it. That's how we need to address that. So, you know, Paul kind of understood the pressure they were getting from the Greeks, the, cr- the pressure they were getting from the Greco-Romans, because they were trying so hard to force them into some mold that they had created. So it was like an everyday struggle. Now, if you've ever been involved in a church that's very traditional and deep-rooted in traditions like I was, it, that can happen to you. I mean, I had people constantly trying to force me uh, when I first got saved to leave this non-denominational ridiculousness and fall back under the denomination we were, you know, I mean, it's like they weren't happy that I was saved. They wanted me to be saved in their religion, you know, and I'm like, ah, well, she's just being saved, thank you. But that's, that's kind of, Paul understood that, so he knew that it was going to be tough for him, so he thought, you know, I want them to know I sympathize, so I'm going to start off by encouraging them. And he reminded them that he and all the disciples endured massive suffering, tons and tons of suffering for Jesus. In fact, it was the suffering that brought them closer to God. That's what encouraged them to get closer of God, closer to God. And this is what he was trying to explain to them. Because when they suffered for the gospel's sake, and if you ever get a chance, you need to read through the Bible and just write down how many times each disciple or each apostle was delivered in hopeless circumstances. Because that's when you get to see who God is. When you, when you really get in trouble, but you continually trust in God, When he comes in to comfort you, when no one else thinks it's possible, you get to realize how powerful God actually is. Because when they were suffering, they were comforted. God released them from jails, released them from people trying to kill them. He did so many things for them because they stayed faithful even when they were suffering. So Paul is basically saying it's to your benefit that we've suffered for Christ. That's a good thing for you. And why? Because because through their suffering, they learned how faithful God truly is. And so now they were able to encourage them to listen. We've been there. You're not going to suffer alone. You're not going to suffer alone. If you will stay faithful, he will help you. Because, see, they knew from experience that God always strengthens the faithful. Remember Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through what? Through him who strengthens me or through Christ who strengthens me. I love that. So Paul was simply saying, listen, yes, you're going to suffer. It's not going to be fun. But if you trust in God, there is a blessing in that suffering. There's always a blessing in that suffering. And one of the biggest blessings is you find out how big God is. I can't tell you how many times I have been in dire straits. And when people tell you, well, there's really nothing you can do. I've I've been told that so many times. And I have seen God step up in ways financially. I've seen him step up ways physically, emotionally. I've seen him step up in so many ways that I'm really not afraid of much. Because I know even though I can't do a lot, the one I serve has the keys to everything. He's in control of everything. And through him, I can face anything. And I've learned that from experience. Okay? And that's what Paul was saying. You get to learn from our experience. You know, before you face struggles and persecution, when you first get saved, you read about God's faithfulness, and it stokes you, makes you excited. But once you have faced struggles, and you've held firm to your faith, you actually experience God's faithfulness, and that's something totally different. It changes you. It changes how you see the future, how you view the past. When you actually uh, have God holding your hand through suffering, it's just unbelievable. And I'm telling you, as, as believers, we do a great job of reminding people that they're going to suffer. 
we don't do such a good job of telling them there's a blessing in suffering. Sometimes we forget to tell them the other part, right? Um, it's like I used to say growing up, uh, I, there was two things I learned by the age of 22. There was a hell and I was going. Because the church I went to was really good at reminding me I was going to hell, just really bad at telling me how to get out of it. Like, where's the exit, you know what I mean, off this highway? So, um, but we got to get better at that. If you look at Psalms 37, 14, it says, The Lord hears his people when they call uh, to him for help. He rescues them from what? All their troubles. It's talking about people who still stay faithful during trouble. Verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Have you ever been truly brokenhearted? I mean, I'm not talking someone talking behind your back. That's not brokenhearted. That's called life. I mean, when you've been truly, you've lost someone really close to you or been betrayed by someone really close to you or, or you know, anything like that. When you trust and pray and you almost feel like he is holding your hand, when you feel his presence that thick, you understand these verses. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue, what? Each time. Very, very important. Many times throughout Jesus' ministry, he told his disciples, I'm going to suffer and you're going to suffer. But there's a blessing in it. He always told both sides. Matthew 5.10. Jesus said, blessed are those who have been what? Persecuted for the sake of righteousness. You know what he's saying there? If you do something that deserves the scrutiny and persecution, there's no blessing in that. Right? Yeah, it, I've heard people do terrible things to people, cheat them and betray them, and then they say, they, they lean back on this, you know, oh, they're, they're persecuting me. No, you're getting what you had coming. That's called reaping and sowing. That's not being persecuted. He's talking about you're blessed when you are persecuted for doing what's right. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11 Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your what? Reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John 15, starting in verse 18, Jesus once again. If the world hates you, you know that it what? It has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, that a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will what? They will also persecute you. If, you, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So, you know, like Jesus, Paul was telling him, listen, suffering's coming. We've been there. But you get to benefit from our experience. And trust me, if you stay faithful, he will do things for you and with you that you never imagined. Stuff you just read about when you learn to trust in him in your struggles. Now, one thing I've noticed is whether it's in Jesus' time or whether it's in Paul's time or whether it's in our time, one thing never changes. And that is the enemy is always working overtime. Always, always working overtime. I've told my wife before, and she looks at me basically with a look that says, shut up, being a big baby. But um, I've told her before that, you know, doesn't the enemy have anybody else to pick on today? I feel like, you know... Like, I feel him click the seatbelt sitting beside me every time I get in my truck, you know? So, I mean, he's always working overtime. The enemy in this world system that he's in charge of have always tried to distract and destroy believers. It's just what they do. And that's his job, and he's good at it. And if you really look around, you can easily see the enemy at work. 
I don't know if any of you have paid much attention to what's going on. I don't know if you can help but pay attention. But the enemy has worked slowly. Uh, just in my lifetime, I've seen a lot change. Slowly trying to turn the whole system against God. You know, it started a long time ago with the, ev- the teaching of evolution, right? All of a sudden, you know, if you were going to be an academic that was respected, then you had to believe that it was true. You had to believe that, that evolution was true. You had to believe that. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. We allowed it to go because we didn't want to cause any work. We didn't fight back. We didn't say anything. We didn't demand that it go beyond a theory or be taught as a theory because it's still a theory. In science, theories can't be called fact until they're proven. Okay? So no missing link, no proof. There is, I'm going to throw this in for free. There is microevolution means that a species can grow more hair if it's in a cold climate. That's real. But that species isn't going to go from a bird to an alligator. Okay? There's no evidence of, of species crossing, but yet they teach it like it's true. See, the enemy has always been willing to change his methodology to remain effective. That was one attempt. He wasn't going to stop there, but he always was willing to change his methodology. See, unlike a lot of churches today, uh, the enemy realizes that times change and people change with it. Do you know there was a time when Amazing Grace was considered way too hip to be played in church? Did you know that? Aren't you glad those days are past? Right? There was a time when they first started playing organs and pipe organs in churches that that was like rock and roll music. You did not bring Elvis into the church house. That's what that was. A pipe organ. Which when I hear it, I think of death when I hear a pipe organ. I don't know why. Right? There was a time that people thought that was just a mockery. Right? Just a mockery to have that. See, the devil's not like that. He's like, times change. I'll change with it. Because I have a message I want them to believe. He changes with the times. He evolves with the times. He started with this, he started with this junk science of telling people about evolution and trying to get them to believe that they, you know, came from a protozoa or whatever, right? And when that, start, when that moved past and people weren't arguing about that anymore, he started trying to attack other things. See, he wanted them to question evolution because if people don't understand their origin, they also won't understand their purpose or their value. If you really think that you were an accident, Right, that gases bump together and you're the result of the cosmic barf. You know, it's tough to feel really good about yourself, isn't it? Right? That's that's what he wanted people to get there. Well, he we've moved past that. And now the enemy is moving on and confusing people in ways that we never imagined. They're questioning their very identities, in some case their humanity. People questioning whether they're human. I'm trying to be sympathetic here. But that's just dumb as heck, you know, questioning whether they are human. Now, I've seen some of their behavior, and I question it too sometimes, but the whole point is if you don't know who or even what you are, are you really going to seek God? See, he's keeping up with the times, trying to make sure he has an appropriate attack message. You know, since the enemy's methods keep evolving and methodology keeps evolving, you know, the believers of the church, we need to make sure that we're evolving too, that we're knowing what we're dealing with and that we're ready to face it. Because... If we don't stop clinging to our comfortable, you know, little religious traditions, it will be as if we're surrendering. Because one thing about churches and Christians that kind of bothers me is that there's a lot of times that when we don't agree with something or don't like something, we think we need to go to war with it. I never saw Jesus do that. I never saw Jesus do that. Listen, if, if you only love people who love Jesus, you're going to have a small circle of friends. 
You know, we are here to bring people to Jesus. That's what we're here to do. But believers anymore, if you don't agree with them, they boycott you, get mad at you, run from you, say terrible things about you, start wars about you. And I'm like going, geez, I just don't think that's what he wants. I just don't think that's what he wants. You know, we we think that, oh, ever the world's not going our way, so let's go into our little exclusionary circles and push everybody out because we're holy and everybody else is going to die. You know, that's not what Jesus wanted. Jesus was eating with prostitutes. He was eating with the, the dredge of humanity so much so that they made fun of him. He didn't run into his little exclusive club and lock the door and keep, if you didn't know the secret handshake, you didn't get in. He didn't do that. He actually went out and tried to find people where they were. So if we want to be like Jesus, we need to find people where they are and love them where they are. Because no matter what era, God's love still prevails all the time. If we rely on God's love, we need to remember to be effective. We need we need to meet people right where they are. Don't tell them, oh, if you change, we'll talk to you. You ever notice that mentality in churches? Well, if, if you change your ways, you're welcome. I want you to come so you can learn how that works. God will change your ways. You know, we just become this exclusive. So we need to learn to meet people how they are now. Understand how people work now, not try to reach people the way they were 20 years ago. It doesn't work. The enemy has evolved. We have to evolve. We've got to evolve with it because there are new challenges. You can run and hide from them. You can face them. But there are people dying every day that need this message. You've got to find some common ground. And one common ground is love. All right. So if we're going to suffer for the faith that we talk about, at least we should put some effort into sharing that faith. OK, I'll just jump off that bandwagon. All right. So I'll close with this. First uh, Corinthians one, eight through eleven. It says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which uh, came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. They were suffering so bad they were hoping to die. That's what it's saying. Verse 9, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. And you uh, also joining in, helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given uh, by many persons on behalf uh, for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. Okay, wordy again. But Paul was finishing up here by confirming that the harder the world tries to dissuade him, the more God strengthens him. That's basically what he was saying. He's like, we've been so persecuted, I just wanted to die. And God came through. He wanted them to understand that, and he did that for two reasons. We'll close with these. First, he wanted to encourage them that no matter how bad it gets, God doesn't abandon you. Listen, your friends that say, I've got your back, they'll abandon you. They won't say they will, but if wait for the right problem to arise, they will. They'll abandon you, right? Uh, you have family sometimes that will abandon you, but God will never abandon you no matter how bad it gets. Second, he wanted to encourage them to help the faithful by continuing to pray for them. Right, listen to what James 5 says, and we need to remember this in our prayer lives. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great what? Power and produces wonderful results. If we believe that about prayer, we pray more. If we really believe that about prayer. I hate it when I hear people say things like, well, there's nothing we can do now. Or even worse yet, they say, well, there's nothing we can do. It's pretty hopeless. I guess we'll just have to pray. I'm like, oh, that's terrible. You're left with just going before the throne of the creator of everything that exists. What a terrible situation to be in. You know, I, I, don't, I don't like that. 
Because the first and most powerful thing we can do in any situation is pray. That's what Paul was trying to tell him. Because taking your concerns before the throne of an almighty God can't be bad, right? Can't be bad. Okay, I'm going to stop there. We'll pick up there next week. Um, there's a lot in here, and I don't better not get started on it right now. So we'll go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you, would you please bow your heads? If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation briefly. Uh, and we're not asking people to come up front or anything like that. Just while every head's bowed, if there's anyone here that would like me to pray for them, maybe you're not sure where you stand with God, I don't, it doesn't matter what it is. I don't need to know. Just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. And I'm going to be praying for you. I really do. Bless those people. If you're listening online or watching online, we'll be praying for you. And as always, I want to pray for believers because I just feel like there's a reason. There's a reason so many things are coming out now that tell us we need to get busy and get faithful. I just think that it is our time. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love and your mercy and especially for your grace. God, people so quickly give up on us. We give up on people we don't like. We give up on people because they uh, are of different nationalities. Whatever the case may be, our prejudice always gets in the way. But yours, you have not. You love us unconditionally no matter who or what we are. I'm so thankful that you have that kind of love and that you offered salvation to anyone who would believe. You don't ask them to change a thing because you'll change what you want to change once they believe. I thank you for that gracious offer. And if someone hasn't accepted that, I just pray that they do and they contact us to walk with them in their new journey. But for those of us who are believers, God, please help us get our hearts right. We need to get focused on why we're here. We believe the time is short and what time we have, God, give us a passion to share the same gospel that delivered us. Because we know if they will believe, you will give them the same gift of salvation you gave us. We just thank you, God, for all that you do, and we just pray that you go with us and keep us safe as we leave here. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, just let us come together one more time and give you the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.